1: Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. This week we'll be discussing yet another defeat for Theresa May in the House of Commons and its impact on her negotiating plans. Plus, we'll be discussing whether Labour MPs are about to break away and form the long-awaited new British Centrist Party. I'm delighted to be joined by our political editor George Parker, Whitehall editor James Blitz, columnist Robert Shrimsley and deputy opinion editor Miranda Green. Thank you all for joining. And if you find yourself liking this episode of FT Politics, then why not subscribe through all those usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning or even leave us a nice review. It should have been a straightforward week for Theresa May. The Prime Minister promised to bring another Brexit vote to the House of Commons and what was a meaningless motion turned into another humiliation as 67 Conservative MPs rebelled against the government to go against her negotiating efforts. And worryingly for the Prime Minister, it was both hardline Remainers and Brexiters uniting to give her a bloody nose. So James Blitz, let's just look at what actually went on in the chamber this week on Thursday evening because Theresa May, we had the big vote with all the series of amendments a couple of weeks ago. And the Prime Minister answered to coerce a very slim and shaky majority around Sir Graham Brady's amendment, which requested changes to the backstop and potentially alternative arrangements. The Prime Minister said she would come back in two weeks and she was doing that to keep people in her government. There were Remainers who were saying, I am about to quit. And she said, well, don't quit. I'm going to give you another opportunity to vote. What happened?
2: Well, basically, Seb, it all went wrong. And in a nutshell, all of the momentum that Mrs May acquired two weeks ago when she got that Brady amendment through, rather meaningless amendment really, but basically said, go back to Brussels, find some alternative arrangements to the backstop. All of the momentum she had, she lost in one fell swoop. Because what basically happened was she put down another meaningless motion, if you like, one which doesn't actually direct anything anywhere, but which is designed to show just how much support you have in the House of Commons. And that motion just had two fundamental problems. That was the pro-Europeans didn't like the fact that it was basically acknowledging what had been achieved with the Brady Amendment, so they voted against it, and the hardline Brexiters, the European Research Group, didn't like the fact that the government was acknowledging a previous resolution by the House that there can't be no deal. And so that group of Conservatives came together, knocked that motion down, and Mrs May has landed up in a situation where she looks like she's lost an awful lot of momentum really badly damaged. She can't turn around now to the Europeans and say, come on, give me what I want for a deal, because the Europeans are saying, well, you don't look like you've got that much momentum in the House of Commons, so why should we do anything? And that's basically where we are. 42 days or so left to Brexit Day. Things looking really bad.
1: So, this is it, George Parker. There are two outcomes of what happened in this vote this week. The first is confirming Theresa May really has no control over her party, that she tried to do a deal with the ERG and they had liaisons between the government's whip's office and the ERG leadership this week to try and agree changes to this meaningless motion. And they couldn't be agreed, and the ERG said, Well, fine, we're going to do our own thing. And the second thing, as James said, it really shows that that majority around the Radio Amendment wasn't really a majority at all because that amendment was so loosely written it could mean anything to anyone. So read really the fact is if your EU negotiators looking at Mrs May and looking at what she could get through the House of Commons the answer is it doesn't look like an awful lot.
3: Well no as James said it was, it was a disastrous miscalculation by the Prime Minister. I mean to be honest What she should have done was put down the blandest possible neutral motion that everyone could agree with, something exhorting her to get on a Eurostar, have a croissant, maybe a nice cup of coffee and go back to Brussels and get a better deal. Something as anodyne as that. Why did they complicate things is a bit of a mystery. But you're right. The upshot of it is that um, not only does the party look disunited, it looks like the prime minister doesn't have control over her party, let alone parliament. But there's also, you know, the, the... poison is back there pumping through the Conservative Party. I spent a few uh, minutes after the the vote on Thursday, just in the members' lobby, when it's a good time to be down there because the emotions are really raw. Uh, And there was fury about the way that Theresa May mishandled this vote, number one. But the second thing was the pro-Europeans of the party are even more galvanised now, in my view anyway, to come back and get their revenge when we have the next big set of votes on the 27th of February, when they will mobilise to try to stop no deal happening. The result of which is that Theresa May, as James is saying, is going to go back to Brussels next week to try and get something back on the table, some sort of revised deal. But if you're sitting in Brussels, and not only do you think, what's the point, she's got no control over Parliament, how can we be sure this is going to work? You're probably going to think, well, let's wait until the end of March. By that point, pro-Europeans could have taken no deal off the table and if no deal's off the table, it opens opens up a range of possibilities, including a very long extension of, of the Article 50 exit process, possibly a general election, possibly a second referendum and all the rest of it. So my guess is the EU will carry on sitting on its hands.
1: Let's just talk about the role of the European Research Group, which is the ERG, as they're often referred to. And this is a banding, a tribe, whatever you want to call it, of Brexit supporting MPs. And they operate as a pretty uniform block in most of the cases of around 50 votes. Sometimes it goes up, sometimes it goes down depending on the motion but a lot of people have accused the ERG of acting like a party within a party, um, and Richard Harrington, one of the Mrs. May's junior ministers, has made that point in very stark language this week. But what if Mrs. May wants to get her Brexit deal through? It's going to require two elements. One is to bring the DUP back on board, who did actually vote with the government mm. this week, and the second thing is to try and get some of those ERG MPs back on side with the government's vote this week. Sort of. So that is going to be a very hard task for the. The government because the fact that 50 of those MPs all voted in a motion that didn't really mean or do anything when the stakes are that high for the Prime Minister's deal it's going to be very hard I think for the government to break open a majority including them.
3: Well you mentioned there the fact that the DUP voted with the government this week I think that's one glimmer of hope for the Prime Minister because my sense their public utterances and their behaviour on that vote suggests to me that the DUP is looking for a deal. And they're looking for a way to actually get back on board. And in number 10, there's a view if you can get the DUP back on board with some sort of time limit on the backstop, you can get maybe two thirds of the ERG people you were talking about, the Tory Eurosceptics, back on board too. So that will be Theresa May's objective, to try to get some sort of legal fix in Brussels, which gets the DUP back on board. And then all the momentum, which Theresa May has lost, as James was describing earlier, will then come back. Because if you can actually, I mean, Theresa May's had no forward momentum in this process probably since it started to be frank two and a half years ago but if she can get to the point where she suddenly gets MPs coming back on board that changes the nature of the discussion and the terms of the debate and then the pressure is on the diehard Eurosceptics who may number 30 or 40 what do, what do they do and then in the end I guess Downing Street's calculation is those people aren't responsive to threats about a no-deal Brexit. Because Because they're happy with a no-deal Brexit. That's actually what they want. What they might be responsive to in the final analysis, let's say the votes taking place right in the last week of the Brexit process running up to March 29th, is the possibility that Brexit is going to be delayed by months, maybe even a year or more, and all the attendant risks for them that Brexit might be lost. So Theresa May will say to them, Brexit is there, it's waiting to happen on the 29th of March and you could lose it. So that's, you know, if you were to try to work out what the strategy is, if indeed Downing Street has a strategy, I suspect that's it, a two-part process. Get the DUP on board and then really turn the screws on the ERG.
1: Now, of course, James, you pointed out the clock is still remorselessly ticking down towards Brexit day. Mrs May is still not countenancing any extension of Article 50. In fact, she's been very firm, you know, telling the Cabinet we will and we must leave on March the 29th. So there's no sign of that there. But MPs feel quite differently about this. So we've got another deadline coming up, which is going to be the 27th of February, which is when Mrs May said that she will have another vote, and another motion, although some people in Downing Street, as I believe George reported this week, think that there may be another meaningful vote before that. I'm not quite sure what that meaningful vote is going to be on. But on the 27th, there's going to be another motion which can be amended. And this is where the infamous Cooper Bowes plan will return in a new form. This is a bill to allow MPs to take control Control. Can you guide us through what that means and how exactly it would work? Because to my reading, it's pretty constitutionally radical.
2: Yeah, it is. It's Now it's no longer the Cooper Bowles. It's Yvette Cooper, the Labour MP, former minister, and she's now working with Sir Oliver Letwin, the former Conservative cabinet minister, who has been incredibly passionate and eloquent against the idea of no deal and he is a voice listened to a great deal in in the Commons more widely because he was in charge of resilience government resilience and this kind of thing, contingency planning, when he was at the Cabinet Office and he is absolutely firmly against no deal. Basically, both he and Yvette Cooper are laying an amendment on the 27th of February and that basically says that if Mrs May has not got any kind of deal agreed by mid-March, then a bill is enacted which will be Basically, allow the House of Commons to press ahead if necessary with the demand for an extension of Article 15, mandating the government to do that. That's basically what it is. Now, Miss Cooper failed, as you will know, with a similar attempt a few weeks ago. This time it looks much, much more likely to succeed, partly because we're a great deal closer to the cliff edge. Also because it's much clearer, as George has reported, that uh, Conservative ministers are now really prepared to back this and resign if it doesn't go through. Because they do not accept the alternative, which is that Mrs May basically goes to the European Council on the 21st of March and then lays the meaningful vote on the 25th, 26th of March, leaving just three days before the cliff edge to work out any alternative if she loses. So this is going to be a big moment. If it passes... It's bad news for Mrs May in one way, because it means it's so difficult for her to turn round to the Europeans and say, give me what I want, or else we could see no deal, because Parliament will be saying, actually, no deal's off the table. However, it does concentrate the minds of the hardliners in the European Research Group because they will also see that no deal is actually off the table and that the alternative really, if they smash the revised May deal, is a lengthy extension of Article 50. So actually, it's a difficult moment for Mrs May because it really will be humiliating to lose this. Parliament will be much more in control, but at the same time, there is that positive potential element that comes out of Cooper let win passing. This is such a convoluted
1: plan, George, when you look at it. So as James said, they put forward this amendment for the 27th, and if that then passes on the 28th, the standing order of the House of Commons will be suspended to allow this bill time to be debated. One assumes that bill will get through the Commons, and then that will have two weeks to be ping-ponged backwards and forwards with the House of Lords. And then there's this key date of the 13th of March, this is what James referred to, was if the PM has not not tabled a motion extending article 50 she'll be forced to do that MPs then have to debate that motion and the government would have to propose a length so they could propose two weeks or three months or six months one would assume Mrs May would want it as small as possible then she has to go to Brussels to get it so by that point you're talking the week of the 18th of March She would have to go and say give me this extension which rose into the council meeting on the 21st of March which is when if there's going to be any big compromise it assumes it's going to come out of that. Then Mrs May would have to come back to the House on the 25th of March, that's just four days before Brexit, to try and get that extension through so it is passed in UK law, otherwise it doesn't enact. So even that process is going to be very, very difficult. And the whole thing is relying on ministers resigning. And as I'm sure you know, ministers love to talk about resigning, Mm. but if they don't resign, it's very problematic. Because that's why I think it didn't happen this week.
3: Yes, I think that's right. I mean, ministers decided this wasn't uh, the high noon week to use the... Dreaded cliche, and really the 27th of February will be the moment. Now, that certainly seems to be the view in Downing Street that they face defeat on this uh, amendment. You're absolutely right that people have been uh, talking the talk without walking the walk on resignations for quite a while now. But you really get the sense now, I I mean, this may be just the heat of the moment, but there were people who were so angry, junior ministers and indeed cabinet ministers, so angry about what happened this week and with the ERG in their view, acting as a party within a party and all the rest of it, they, they do seem ready to push this. And if they do, and you go through the, I'm very glad you explained the process there Seb, rather than me, but if they do start down that route, it does put pressure on the ERG to come into line. But it could go one of two ways, couldn't it? Because you could have the ERG behaving rationally and thinking this is as good as Brexit's going to get, let's go for Mrs May's deal. Or you could have civil war in the Tory party. I know we have it already, but full-blown civil war disobedience. The ERG threatened to bring all government business in future to a halt. It could get very messy indeed.
1: I'm actually been wondering because of the convoluted nature of this process, if we've talked again on this podcast about the prospect of spilling into a general election, but I've been wondering if Cooper Letwin now passes into law, is this the point of which some of your sceptics might think about abstaining or something to pull us into an election? Because the idea that you're going to pass this amount of power to MPs who are against a no-deal Brexit or a hard Brexit, I do wonder if the ERG can stomach that and of course this is just extending article 50 there are other plans afoot from mps to then allow the house to decide what form of brexit it wants to take because if mrs may's deal isn't going anywhere and she's not going to pivot towards a softer deal then mps will have to do the necessary process to lay out what kind of brexit it will be we've talked about indicative votes or motions or what have you but you do that process and to get that through you're going to have to continually keep standing down this standing order 14 and allow mps to basically put through major primary legislation for the most important issue in 40 years, it just strikes me as very unlikely that that's going to all happen. So at that point, I do wonder if we could end up in an election territory.
3: Well, I still think it's entirely possible that we do end up in an election if there is a standoff. I mean, my view all the way along is that in spite of all the diversions and alarms and scares and crises and dramas like we've had this week, that in the end, the economic and political stakes are so high for everyone concerned, and the Conservative Party, for a start, the country, the economy, the EU, that in the end, when it comes down to it, are they going to allow this deal to falter on the issue of the Northern Ireland backstop? Let's take away all the other personalities and the anger and the bitterness and all the rest of it. My instinct all the way down the line is at the end of this process, maybe in the last week of March, the deal, no matter how much of a compromise, a messy compromise, no one's going to like it very much. I just wonder whether people are clinging to it like a piece of flotsam in the ocean, you know, if you're a drowning man.
1: And James, obviously, we've seen the wider no-deal context this week, particularly with the economic growth figures that came out. And obviously, you know, those who said that the UK economy was going to dive into recession it was all going to fall off a cliff edge following the referendum result were wrong and the economy i think weathered pretty well most mainstream economists say we've grown slower than we would have had we remained in member. but the economy has still kept growing the jobs markets in a healthy situation but the numbers that came out this week did suggest that business confidence is very low that growth is very weak but that's also true in europe as well with germany tipping ever so slightly into recession. So with that broader picture, you can see, as George says, that wider desire to not have a no-deal, which could certainly drag parts of Europe into recession, as well as the UK. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, if one stands back for a second, I think for anybody who's actually sitting in Westminster and watching what happens in the Commons, we've just got to remind ourselves that out there, business leaders across the country, especially small, medium-sized businesses, are looking at this absolutely aghast because we are getting so close to the cliff edge now. We have, one of the things is that, you know, although we're terribly focused on what's going on in Parliament, this week in the FT, almost every day, there's been stories which just show you how worried businesses are now getting about the situation. Bank of America, for example, announced that it was spending $400 million moving its operations out of the UK. And its chief person in an interview with the FT was saying really clearly, you know, whatever happens on Brexit, you know, whatever the outcome, no deal, deal, stay in the EU, we're never going to reverse that decision. There was a real sense of unease, almost anger in in the way things had gone. In in that and in in many other comments that are made by business leaders, Uh, the heads of the food and agriculture industry in the UK wrote to Michael Gove saying, we have absolutely no capacity to talk about any of the sort of public policy issues you want to talk about in terms of standards and so on and, and hygiene because we're just totally focused on Brexit. As you said, really bad figures came out about the 2018 growth, which was the worst since the financial crisis. So out there in the country, country, people are looking on aghast. And sometimes this week in West, in watching, you get to know whether George the same, when you listen to MPs, not all of them, you kind of wonder whether they get this. They seem to be in a bubble. It's like something that they're totally divorced from the reality that's going on out there. I mean, mm. it's all a kind of game in a way, it's sort of with incremental moves in Westminster. But in the end, really big decisions are being taken and the button is being pressed on no deal planning, which is irreversible for many companies. And I think
3: actually that's one of the reasons why Theresa May, according to one MP who'd seen her in the House house, said it was the angriest they'd ever seen her look, that she just regards this as a lot of game playing when the stakes are extremely high and that the vote this week was totally against the national interest because it undermines her in Brussels. So I think her fury re- reflects the fact, as James says, the stakes are high and some people don't seem to recognise that.
1: And I think the pressure on no deal is only going to increase. That is, you know, if this is squeaky bum time, then imagine what it's going to be like four days before Brexit when there is no deal and no extension and the prospect of a very chaotic Brexit five days later. That, I think, Mrs May Hope will really focus minds.
2: It's going to be a very hairy final period, I'm afraid, for business, for the general public. We must also mention them, of course, because thus far they're watching... But as we get closer to the cliff edge, you do wonder whether people's personal behaviour, we haven't seen that much stockpiling, but you never know, things might change there. But also for financial markets, one has to always come back to one point. Financial markets have not priced in no deal. This is not something that's fully understood. If we actually went over the cliff, there would be, in the minds of many analysts, a severe financial markets reaction.
3: And the really scary thing is that nobody knows whether Theresa May will actually do it. Still. Still. Nobody in the cabinet, apart from the Prime Minister herself and possibly her husband, Philip.
1: You're listening to FT Politics from the Financial Times. Westminster has been abuzz with rumours about the formation of a new centrist party for months, if not years. It's blindingly obvious that many Labour MPs are unhappy with Jeremy Corbyn's leadership, particularly his stance on Brexit and not backing a second referendum. This week there were reports of a Valentine's Day breakup, with around a dozen MPs thought to be thinking of quitting the party. But, once again, it didn't happen. So this naturally poses the question, will it ever Robert Shrimsley, the idea of a new centrist party we've talked about many times on this podcast is something that really has captured the imagination of the press because it's something very dramatic. It will be bold and might start off a great realignment of British politics. But it's rapidly becoming one of those things in Westminster is it's always talked about, but never actually going to happen. Oh, I think it is going to happen precise format is up for debate but there
4: is absolutely clearly a core of people especially in the Labour Party who are going to leave and going to have a new political grouping whether it's a separate grouping from the Liberal Democrats whether it goes into some kind of alliance or full merger that's up for debate but that is going to happen I think is certain you've got people you know in the background people like Jonathan Powell Tony Blair's former chief of staff who are working with all the different groups who think they could be the new centre party to make sure we don't have a dozen of them but I think it's absolutely Certain to happen. The issue is one of timing. I think until very recently, the view of those in the Labour Party, because they are also huge remainers, the people we're talking about, was that as long as Jeremy Corbyn was flirting with a second referendum, that you would stay put in the Labour Party and put up with all the other rubbish because you had a chance of influencing Brexit. I think they're beginning to see that he's not very likely to do that, which is why you're hearing them cranking up the volume. And I think the other point here is that cranking up the volume at this point is designed to put a bit more pressure on him on the second referendum, But I do think it's only a matter of timing. I do think it's going to happen.
1: So this is about eight MPs or so are talking about in the Labour Party who, as you said, are sort of from the centre-left. They are pro-EU. And they have fallen out of favour under Mr Corbyn's leadership there. But then there's also the question about other people. So we've heard from uh, you know, people like Anna Supri and Heidi Allen in the Conservative Party that they might be willing to quit their party because of their stance on Brexit, Miranda Green.
5: Yes. And the other thing that's complicating the picture is the sudden re-emergence of the idea of deselections of these moderate Labour MPs and even moderate Tories, exactly. So what's been going on in Grantham, which is Nick Bowles's seat, is an extraordinary reaction to his attempt to find a Brexit compromise. And, you know, he wants Brexit to happen, but he's trying to find something to go through the House of Commons, which can get support from all parties. And the reaction of the local Conservative Party is to try and get rid of him, essentially. So you've, you've got a lot of Movement on both sides. On the Labour side, I'd just like to add I think it's now more than this idea of disgruntled former Blairites because the discontent is boiling over on a range of issues, everything from the way the party's handled anti Semitism to Brexit and many things in between. And also, you need to be aware that the Corbyn MacDonald machine wants to gain control of enough Labour seats. That they can be sure of. So they're also coming after Labour MPs who actually are socialists, but aren't their socialists, because they want as many safe Labour seats as possible because they know how tricky it's going to be to get an actual majority. So, you know, there are people being targeted by Momentum who aren't even Blairites.
4: I think there is a fundamental distinction between the Labour Party and the Conservative Party here. And the Conservative Party has monstrous splits over Brexit. But I don't think that the broad Conservative coalition is beyond breaking point on all of the other issues, on economic policy, on social policy. Of course, there's disagreement. But I think it's a place where the people within that party still feel able to disagree with each other within the tent. Brexit is the thing that's pulling them apart. In the Labour Party, I think it's much more different because the disagreement is about everything. The people who don't like Jeremy Corbyn don't like his position on Brexit – they don't like his position on the economy. They worry about his foreign policy. It's a fundamental rupture. So I do think with the Conservative Party, you're probably talking about a few people peeling off. Though obviously there's the other possibility of people peeling off to UKIP from the other end of the party. But in the centre, it's a few people peeling off with Labour. It's a more existential crisis. And the
1: question, Miranda, is, is it going to be a big bang, at such as when the SDP formed in the early 80s, where you had a political declaration, a group of MPs, which then was followed by a group of activists forming behind the or is it more of a case of people just drifting away? So we've already seen some MPs, Frank Field, um, resign the Labour whip, John Woodcock, another Labour MP, resigned the whip, and they've kind of gone to this weird netherland where they're there. They're sort of sometimes voting with Labour, not voting with Labour. Labour has chosen candidates to replace them, at least in John Woodcock's case. But I guess that these people in the Labour Party do want to have a moment that signifies a break and a new cycle and shows there is some clear momentum and strategy behind it but if they only get say eight MPs which is the numbers we've been hearing this week that's not really in the scale of what happened with the SDP is it?
5: No I don't know about whether they will have the confidence to have a moment that's like you know the moment that the SDP big beasts emerge to found a new party partly also because they don't have those big beasts so it will look very different it will be a collection of sort of middle-ranking MPs it will not be you know hugely important former cabinet ministers and you know I mean Roy Jenkins had run the European Commission these were very very serious people talking about a moment in the nation's history where a different path should be chosen but I think also you've got quite a lot of those MPs who look at the example of the STP and think, well, look what happened to them. You know, it was the end of their careers, all of those other junior MPs who jumped ship with the the gang of four. The thing about that, and, you know, Robert and I, I know, have discussed this before, is you can interpret the SDP as a failure or you can interpret it as a project which actually changed the political weather and led to not just new Labour, but also let's remember UKIP, Nigel Farage, looked at the example of the SDP to change the nature of the Conservative Party. So you can change politics with a new party, even if your new party doesn't succeed in gaining power.
1: So what these people would have to do, Robert, is they'd announce in Westminster that we are resigned the Labour whip and sitting as a new grouping, no idea what it would be called, you can pick all the various names that have been floating around, and then they would start to try and build up that party and get ready for the next election because Labour would then choose its candidates to replace them. And then, of course, this leads to the nightmare that I think people in Jeremy Corbyn's office are very concerned about, which is splitting the vote in marginal seats, places where Labour and the Tories are quite tied. If you then have another candidate who has a local recognition, centre-left politics, then you will pull votes away from Labour, particularly in Remain seats, and potentially open the door to more Conservatives winning. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's exactly right. I and mean, I'm not a,
4: a huge believer in identity politics of individual candidates within seats. I think it's probably worth about 1,500, 2,000 votes. That could make a difference in a few places, but not many. Yes, I think they'll break away, whether they'll create a new party specifically or just sit are sitting as independent Labour I think they have to go into talks with the Liberal Democrats. You cannot have two parties occupying very, very similar space. The Liberal Democrats have a huge organisational structure which these people will not have. You'd be insane not to work together with them. The one point I would make just in reply to you is that of course you can see how this can damage the Labour Party and damage the Labour vote. But there's no reason why this can't also damage the Conservative vote. A mainstream centre party will take votes from both sides in unpredictable ways. And so the Conservatives should be just as bothered about this as
1: the Labour Party. And I guess it depends on whether this is clearly a centre left party or a centrist party, because the Liberal Democrats, of course, during his most successful years managed to do both. You had Nick Clegg, who was much more centrist, than say Vince Cable, who was much more centre left. On the issue of Vince Cable and the Liberal Democrats, Miranda, you know, Vince has talked this week and has been reported by the FT about how this might work in practice, that you have this group in parliament that have some kind of voting agreement or some kind of collaboration with the Liberal Democrats. But it does strike me unlikely that, you know, Chuka or Gavin Chuka or the other names being talked about are going to go and join the Liberal Democrats.
5: Yeah, I think that's very unlikely. And I think some sort of alliance, loose or formal, would be the way that things Would develop. But also, you know, there are differences. That's the thing to remember. You know, there are different political traditions here and different belief systems. It's not just about the economy. I mean, you're quite right to point out that, you know, Clegg was sort of more centre-right than the Kennedy-Ashdown era was more centre-left on the economy, etc. But what they all shared was being definitely, definitely centre-left, edging over into left on sort of civil liberties type issues, etc. And actually there, the kind of Lib Dem Venn diagram has an overlap with Corbinite Labour more than it does, arguably, with the kind of Blairite rump of the Labour Party, who certainly on kind of Home Affairs type things, crime and punishment, were actually kind of quite centre-right. I mean, the Blairite electoral miracle was partly to do with sounding and being tough on crime, tough on causes of crime was the famous slogan, but actually when you look at the analysis of where the political gap is, it's not all on the left.
1: Can we talk about the relations with the People's Vote campaign Robert? Because one of the things that I think has undermined the campaign for second referendum has been all the people involved there are either from the new Labour era and have been reportedly rumoured Oh you're in trouble now. I can just see the emails winging their way over to you now Seb for such a calumny. Lots of people involved are undeniably involved with the new Labour campaign and or also have been reportedly rumoured involved with the talks of that. So the question is is this going to be entirely based on a second referendum and reversing Brexit? Is that the thing that holds them all together as to those differences Miranda talked about or is it something that maybe they're better off waiting till have actually left the EU and it becomes the rejoin party?
4: Well I mean I don't think it should be either. I think that if we have just left the European Union there is no no place for a party that's immediately campaigning for us to rejoin not that there's no place but there is no mileage really for them in this at this time and Pro-Europeanism could certainly be a part of their agenda and will be, but it's got to be far bigger than that. It's got to be about, you know, healing the fractures in the country, bringing the two sides, ending the polarization, having a policy platform which marries social justice with some belief in the capitalist system, uh, you know, having a, a, a globalizing Western facing foreign policy. This is the structure. I mean, it is a, it is a Blairite party. I mean, the truth is they actually want Tony Blair, but they would be better off if they had him. But he's clearly become too toxic even for them. It's got to be much, much bigger than that. There's no future for them in just being the let's refight the referendum party.
5: And I think also that's really interesting. I completely agree with Robert. And actually some of the false dawns of a new party being started over the last two to three years have been because it's been people from the business community who are fiercely pro-European, but actually their other views are unmarketable in the political you know, marketplace of the UK. Very sort of libertarian. Uh, and very sort of anti-regulation, low tax people. So that's different again from the sort of party that might emerge from, from a split in Labour.
1: And of course, all this talk of Mr Blair does raise, I think, what is probably the biggest obstacle to this new party is that there is not a current obvious leader of this. Somebody who would fill all those things that Robert said. Um, this, obviously, there are a lot of known names who have been involved in talking with splitting away. But there's not an obvious leader there. I'm pretty sure, you know, Chuka Romano would see himself in that category if he is one of the people who does split away. And I guess the talk about this has has increased so much recently, it's almost impossible to see how it doesn't happen. But getting a key leader in there who is forward looking and not backwards, but also has the appeal is going to be very difficult for them.
5: Very difficult. And Uh, It's a whole new political era. So I think, you know, your discussion about the drawbacks of the People's Vote campaign was partly that idea that they were slightly stuck in the 1990s. Things are very different now. Maybe you can get away with a kind of looser, multiple leaders of a movement kind of idea, which is what they talk about. A lot of them think that Chukaramuna is their answer to the leadership question. I sort of personally think that, It might be better to go down the route of having somebody from outside politics, but then you get into some dreadful kind of who would be president if we abolished the queen kind of voting competition, where you, you know, whether it's J K Rowling or whoever, it does have to be the right person. Otherwise, uh, well, you see, it depends what you're trying to achieve. Again, if you actually want to build a parliamentary force. It needs then to be that's one thing. If your mission is actually to drag the Labour opposition back or to occupy that territory more long term, then you're actually in a different game. But I, th- I
4: think you still need the same criteria because you've got to be relevant enough to get attention, to get the media attention, to get the public's gaze. It's possible that one of these people who doesn't quite look prime ministerial material at the moment could grow into the role. I think the bigger challenge they face is that we're clearly as a country in a mood for change. You know, we've got changed Jeremy Corbyn style, we've got changed Brexit Brexit. style. In the middle, you have these people who essentially represent, no, let's not... And that's going to be very difficult because they've also got their best hope is to also be a change party. So we are changing to something, not changing back to what we were before. And you've rejected and it will be very easy to portray them as the failed policies of the past. So what they've actually got to find is a way of saying, no, look, we're new and different. And I have to say, although I take Miranda's point about the difficulties of working with the Lib Dems, I think they've got to be sufficiently grown up about this to find a way to do so, because there's just no way we've got room for two very small centre parties with about eight MPs. What have the Lib Dems got now? 12? Yeah, and eight, 11. 11. One uh,
5: peeled off to support May's deal. Ah,
4: right. There we go. 11 on one. <laughs> eight Labour MPs, a couple of Tories. That or fractured arguing with themselves that's going absolutely nowhere. They have to be grown up and disciplined and put themselves together and say we're a new force in British politics offering a new direction and it has to be relentlessly
1: forward looking if it has any chance of doing anything at all. And finally let's just talk about the timings of all this that as I said at the beginning this has been talked about for quite a long time on this and there was talk for some reason this week might be the moment essentially I think what these moderate figures in the Labour Party are looking for is a moment where 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 Jeremy Corbyn is clearly not going to support a second referendum. I think it's been blindingly obvious that he's not going to. But they need that kind of proof to say that this is what the Labour Party conference for. Our movement is behind it. He's gone against that. Therefore, we can't serve under this leadership. And we thought that we might have that moment on Thursday with the votes. That didn't happen. The next big moment looks as if it's going to be the 27th of February when the PM has promised to come back and give us another meaningful vote. Do you think that's the time when it might happen, Robert, or...? I mean, I don't know is the truth. My
4: instinct is they should wait till Brexit is done. There is no point in getting in the way of a story which has a far bigger news cycle. And also there's just more important issues to deal with that I know people attach a great importance to it being the moment that you jump. But when it happens, if it's going to succeed, that will be a moment in itself.
5: Yes, I agree. They have to be very... Careful not to become yet another sort of Brexit kamikaze mission, trying to stop the course of this particular micro disaster. But honestly, the idea that you wait till Brexit's done—when will Brexit so, be I done? Mean, this, this particular is... stage of Brexit. Yeah. Well, we'll still be stuck in the Brexit weeds for some time yet.
1: And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you to George, James, Robert and Miranda for joining us. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed what you've heard and would like to see more FT journalism, then do check out our latest subscription offers, which you can find at ft.com forward slash offer. FT Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne and produced by Caroline Grady. Until next time, thanks for listening.